I don't know how many of you guys um, are good at remembering things. I don't know where you guys fall on that, ca- on that spectrum. Historically, I've been um, what might be described as a little bit airheaded, a little bit forgetful. Um, so essentially, you know, in high school, I was constantly forgetting meetings that I had with people. And, uh, but at least I had my parents um, who maybe inappropriately helped me remember certain things. Maybe they were a crutch to me in helping me remember to be at soccer practice and remember to turn things in. I'm not sure. When I got to college, it became really, really apparent that I needed help remembering things. And so I remember my freshman year, there was an upperclassman at Covenant College who was, had sort of taken me under his wing and was trying to disciple me. And we were supposed to meet, you know, every Tuesday morning at 7 a.m. in the Great Hall, and we were going to sort of pray and read the Bible together. And probably 75% of the time, on Tuesday morning at about 7.10, I would wake up with this guy leaning over me and whispering, hey, BP, BP, it's time to meet. I just constantly forgot. And so, you know, that went through the rest of college where maybe I got a little bit better about remembering things. I mean, the truth is my life back then was pretty simple. So I basically had soccer and class and a couple of other things. So I was able to hold it together. When I got to seminary, however, I had a job working in admissions where I needed to remember all these different meetings that happened all over the place, you know, throughout the course of a day and throughout the course of a week. And so in the admissions office, they gave us something called a day planner. I don't know if you guys ever had a day planner. If you did, uh, raise your hand, please. I appreciate it. A day planner was a little paper, bi- a little binder, and you put these little monthly things, you know, sheets of paper in it, and you would have to hand write, you know, meeting at 9 a.m. with the Smiths, meeting at 1.30 with such and such. And uh, that was great. The intention of that was wonderful. The problem is you actually have to write things down in it to remember them, and then you have to remember to look back in it to remember them. And so, man, I just missed all these meetings. And so it got so bad that I would write things in my uh, day planner, and then I would also write them on my hand in pen so that hopefully I would remember to look at my day planner, or at least I would remember to look at my hand, and that, you know, then I would be reminded of what was happening for that day. And the really embarrassing times were when I would forget a meeting that was actually written on my hand. Because, you know, at some point in time, you got to use the bathroom and wash your hands, and it sort of runs a little bit, or I would just forget to look up. It was just maddening. Well, finally, you know, after uh, seminary, um, I went into ministry and then went from there to where I was a director of admissions at Covenant College, and I really, really had to keep things, you know, in order. I need to re- have sort of great systems of reminders. And so at that point in time, I started using Google Calendar and living my entire life off of this digital calendar. And so now I have all these reminders built into my uh, iPhone calendar and into my Google Calendar so that I still miss a meeting every now and then. But for the most part, I'm pretty good. I still uh, need those reminders, but at least I don't have to write things on my hand in ink anymore. Um, Today is Easter Sunday. And every year, Easter is a reminder of what is arguably the most important truth, not just in Christianity, but the most important truth in the history of humanity, that Jesus Christ, the God-man, died and rose again. And this very day, as the Apostles' Creed reminds us, is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. In other words, He is alive. For today, however, I want to refer back to the text that we read earlier this morning, and, uh, and I want to see what Easter reminders we find in those texts. And so the question is, what Easter reminders do we see in those passages we read earlier this morning? The first one, I think, is this, is that the celebration of Easter, that's what we're doing today, is a reminder that Jesus is alive. It's a reminder that Jesus is alive. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. 
They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, and I love this line, why do you look for the living among the dead? Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. There are probably very few lines in scripture that are more poetic, more aesthetically pleasing than lines six and seven. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He is risen. It doesn't seem that the angels are speaking down to the women. It doesn't seem that they're speaking to them in a tone of derision. It doesn't seem that they're speaking to them in disrespect, but rather it seems that these angels are speaking to them in some sort of a gentle and yet excited curiosity. You can almost imagine them speaking to the women with a gleam in their eye as they saw for themselves God's plan coming into focus. The content of their message to the women was very, very simple. Jesus isn't in this graveyard. He's not dead, in fact, he's alive. And a few moments later, we know that Jesus would appear to Mary Magdalene, and then to Peter, and then to Thomas, and then to the men on the Emmaus Road, whose hearts burned within them as he spoke to them. And just to be clear, the followers of Jesus were not expecting this twist. They were caught off guard, just like everyone else was. They, just like Pilate and just like the Romans, thought that Jesus was dead, and yet another messianic movement was over and done with. Maybe they assumed, that is, the disciples, maybe they assumed that Jesus' prediction of his resurrection was simply metaphor. Maybe they assumed it was just some, something that was symbolic. And they were just as shocked as everyone else was to find that Jesus had risen from the dead and was now alive. Clearly, something for them changed that day forever. A group of despondent friends and followers of Jesus went from depression to mission in the blink of an eye. Something happened that day. From that moment on, they gave up everything, including their professions and their lives, even certain friendships, to carry a message around the world, the known world, that a living Savior had conquered sin and death. Something happened that day. People do not give up their lives for a lie. We need to remember this truth just as much as they did. We need to remember that Jesus is alive and well, not metaphorically, not symbolically, but really that he is alive and well. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that the living Jesus reigns, that he rules and reigns on high that we have a good king who sits upon the throne to whom we can appeal for help. Hebrews 7 tells us that Jesus, again, this living Jesus, lives to make intercession for those who draw near to God through Jesus. That means, very simply, that Jesus is, the living Jesus is, your personal advocate in heaven. He is fighting for you He is fighting for me. He is speaking to God on your behalf. You can take everything to him, and he will advocate for you before the throne of God. There is more than just a living Savior. That's more that he's doing. Acts 9 and Acts 16 tells us some other things that this living Jesus is up to. Both reveal that Jesus is also still awakening people, and he's still drawing them to himself. In Acts 16, we're told about Lydia And that Jesus opened her heart to listen to Paul's message, after which she and her household 
were baptized. In other words, Jesus was taking an active role in opening Lydia's heart. Of course, in Acts 9, we see and have read that, that a living Jesus confronted Paul on the Damascus Road. Many of you remember that story. And the next thing we know, this man who had once persecuted Christians had become one himself. This living Jesus is active, he's alive and well. The question is, what does that mean for us? What does it mean that Jesus reigns, that he currently reigns in heaven? What does it mean that he advocates for us? What does it mean that he's drawing people to his heavenly Father? The fact that Jesus reigns means that his good purposes in your life will come to pass. Let me say that one more time. The fact that Jesus reigns in heaven, that he sits beside God upon the throne, it means that, that his good purposes for your life will come to pass. Neither chance nor the evil one has the final say, right? Neither of them have the final say. He does. Because Jesus reigns, all things work together for the good of them that love God and are called according to his purposes. The fact that Jesus intercedes for you means that you are not alone. Let me say that one more time. The fact that Jesus, this living Jesus, intercedes for you means that you are not alone. Jesus the great high priest that Hebrews talks about is a willing and compassionate friend who enters into your pain, not only with you, but for you. You're not on your own in this world. You have someone who has experienced suffering. You have someone who has experienced betrayal and who is with you in yours. And the fact that Jesus is active in pursuing and drawing people to his father is a reminder that we're in the middle of a grand story of redemption, that God is redeeming people, that Jesus is active in redeeming wandering people, that he's reconciling them to his Father, that he's bringing them back to himself. We are not alone in this grand story of redemption. Again, this echoes the voice, the voices of the angels. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. What else does this Easter passage remind us of today? The celebration of Easter also reminds us of our weakness. Let's uh, follow along again. Let me just read a few things here. Easter is primarily a celebration, and it's primarily a reminder of Jesus conquering sin and death in his resurrection from the dead. We know that. But Easter is also a reminder of our frailty and our weakness. That is the frailty and weakness not only of humans, period, but even the frailty and weakness of Christians. We're not as strong often as we think we are. If you've ever read much scripture, you'll quickly see that almost every human who is adopted by God and called to serve him is distinctly and unmistakably broken, weak, and frail. We all know about Adam and Eve. They were the picture of frailty. Some of you remember that Noah, who despite his faithfulness in building the ark, that was quite amazing obedience, got drunk immediately after the flood. And after it receded, he was humiliated in front of his sons. He was weak and frail. Abraham followed God to the promised land. That was a great victory. But along the way, when he got into trouble, instead of trusting in God, he took matters into his own hands. And through deception, he tried to save his family and tried to save himself apart from God's help. Dishonesty and lying then seemed to make their way into the family DNA. Jacob, though chosen by God very clearly, lived a life that for the most part was marked by deception until God finally rescued him from himself. The list of broken and sinful, frail and weak people in the Old Testament goes on 
and on and on. We see it in the life of David. We see it in the life of Judah. We see it in the life of Elijah. We see it in the life of Jonah, just to name a few more weak, frail, broken followers of God. And that list of broken people and frail people in the New Testament is every bit as long. Paul persecuted people and had them killed before God uh, adopted him and called him into his family. Peter, James, and John fell asleep when Jesus asked them to pray with him the night before he went to the cross. That story always gives me great hope because what it makes me realize is if they could fail him that badly at such an important time, that God could uh, accept me as well. Peter famously denied Jesus when Jesus needed his fidelity the most. In the passages we read earlier today, we saw more of that frailty. The ladies who followed Jesus, Mary Magdalene, Joanna and Mary all went to the tomb. They encountered the angels who then had to remind them that Jesus said he would rise from the dead. The angels said to the woman, women, listen to again to these verses. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the son of man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on, on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. Oh yeah, that's right. It wasn't just the women somehow who missed or who had forgotten Jesus' words or his overt uh, predictions of betrayal, death, and resurrection. The other disciples also forgot. We read in verse 9 the following, when they, that is the women, came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. And listen to verse 11, a shining moment for these followers of Jesus, his hand-picked crew, but they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter responded just a little bit better. We read in verse 12 that he at least took the women's testimony that the tomb was empty. He took it seriously. We read there this, Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself, what had happened, right? Again, all of these followers of Jesus are not painted in a particularly flattering light. Peter, like the women, was mostly confused initially by the empty tomb. All of the saints in the Old Testament and all the believers in the New Testament are reminders to you and to me of our weakness and our frailty. We needed a hero who, in compassion, for us would come and rescue us from that weakness, to rescue us from that frailty, to rescue us from that sin and from that brokenness. Hear the words of Psalm 103. Psalm 103 says this, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all, not some, but all, your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities." For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. 
As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Easter is a wonderful celebration. It's a wonderful reminder of our frailty. It's a wonderful reminder of our failings and our weakness. In the crucifixion, we're reminded of the ugliness and the sin of humanity, greed and gossip, infidelity and insecurity and insincerity, anger and apathy. That ugliness, however, is not just seen in other people as we look at them. The Holocaust and the gulags remind us that as Solzhenitsyn wrote, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. We're all broken. We're all frail. We like to think of ourselves as the hero in every story, but it's much more likely that in this crucifixion story, this Easter story, we would have stood with the crowd calling for Jesus' crucifixion. It's much more likely that we would have been just like Peter, the women at the tomb, and the disciples on the road to Emmaus. We probably would have forgotten too, and we still do. But Easter reminds us that we serve a God who entered into that frailty with us in order to rescue us, in order to redeem us, his wandering children.